Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited for our discussion, but before we dive in, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, Jennifer Weaver, and I'm a partner at Waller, which is a national healthcare firm uh, based out of Nashville, and I'm the co-chair of the firm's healthcare industry team. Uh, I've been representing healthcare providers, and, and we're we're focused on the provider side. Uh, we represent healthcare providers across multiple sectors, kind of all sectors, uh, and many, many ASC providers. Uh, and what I do, my practice is really focused on representing healthcare providers in all their dealings with the government, whether that's government investigations, um, government audits, and, and helping them build compliance programs to stay out of trouble. So. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm excited to learn from you. And first, could you tell us a little bit more about the government policy updates, regulatory environment? What are things that are affecting ASCs today? Yeah, so, so the government's main enforcement tool is the False Claims Act. And those are, uh, it's, it's, a SIP, it's a federal statute where whistleblowers can bring claims on behalf of the government. Some of the cases are initiated by the Department of Justice, but most of them are whistleblower cases. And they're basically cases involving false claims submitted to the government. Um, healthcare is the number, you know, uh, basically defense contractors in healthcare are the, the uh, typical defendants in these cases. So that's the main thing are False Claims Act investigations. Um, and then the other big area is that people don't recognize as much uh, are the uh, CMS contractors that do these audits and um, in particular the UPIC audits. So it's Unified Program Integrity Contractor. And uh, those are private companies that contract with CMS to do audits that are based on what they think of as, you know, indicia of fraud. And so they're doing data mining across providers. You know, they've got an entire database of like all the Medicare and Medicaid claims there are. They're doing data mining looking at the prevalence of certain codes, um, you know, outliers in billing, and then they're doing audits and coming up with extrapolated overpayments. And what providers, when they get these audit requests from UPICs, a lot of times they don't recognize is that, um, you know, it looks like a routine audit. You get payer audits all the time or rack audits. Those are just kind of the routine audits. They might mistake a UPIC for that, but these are anything but routine. And um, with the extrapolated overpayments, I mean, I, you know, I'm dealing with one right now that I'm working through the Medicare appeals process. It's a $22 million overpayment for one psych hospital. Um, and so, you know, they can be really significant. Um, you know, on the ASC, on the ASC side, and I should, we don't have wood, I would knock on it, but <laughs> ASCs have not been hit quite as much with government enforcement action as some other sectors mm -hmm. that are frequent targets like, you know, home health hospice, um, behavioral health care is really getting hit badly right now. Um, the one exception would be anything involving pain. Mm -hmm. So if you have a pain practice as part of your AAC, pain is always a, a enforcement target. And so, you know, pain management providers in particular have to be very careful. Um, and, you know, there's been some lately it, um, arrangements with anesthesia providers have been a target and, and looking at those arrangements. But um, it, it's really, it's a lot of the, the, 
depending on what practice it is. So you have different, in an ASC setting, you know, various specialties. Um, and across those specialties, ophthalmology, pain, like I said, is always kind of um, a hot target. Uh, the, I mean, one of the theories that will lead to a False Claims Act investigation or could trigger a UPIC audit are, uh, you know, instances of miscoding or improper coding. The kind of trend you see in coding is use of modifiers comes up all the time, whether you're using modifiers uh, appropriately for different procedures. Uh, and then the use of, of highly reimbursed codes. Like whenever you're using a highly reimbursed code, then the government takes notice. Um, and, you know, in a lot of these, it's not really clear which code is, especially when new technologies come on the market and new, you know, new procedures are rolled out, like which code is the appropriate code. You don't always know. Um, and if you're using a code that is highly reimbursed because it approximates, it maybe seems close mm -hmm. enough. What I always tell my clients is if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Mm -hmm. So uh, I can give you an example that I think maybe will um, kind of tell the story a little bit. Of, um, and I think, you know, probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with um, P-STEMS, which is a device that came out, I mean, you know, 2010 or so, I mean, way back. It comes on the market, and it was used to treat pain, mm -hmm. um, and pain management providers, they really liked it, and it worked very well. And it's basically uh, a device that's at like attached adhesively behind the ear and just some needles are stuck mm -hmm. in, and, but it's not surgically implanted. Um, despite the fact it, it was a good device and um, had good results for patients and, and good clinical outcomes, uh, there wasn't a code for it, uh, and so they were using a code, um, L8679, maybe? So, uh, and it was a highly reimbursed code. It paid like $6,500. Um, but that code is specifically for surgically implanted devices, and these aren't surgically implanted. Um, but they were very popular. There were tons and tons of, of these procedures happening, and the usage of the code just totally spiked, and the government noticed it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, these devices cost like 250 bucks, and you're—it's not surgery, mm -hmm. so you're just—it's just you know attached behind the ear, and uh, so they're extremely profitable. Uh, CMS came back, I mean, it took them 10 years to put out clarifying guidance that no, this is not, P-STEMs are not surgically implanted, you can't use the L8679 code for this. Um, but the kicker was that the, gov the Department of Justice kicked off just a, a rash of lawsuits all throughout the country and multi-million dollar settlements all in every jurisdiction for everyone that was doing it. So it didn't matter that you know, the guidance didn't come out till 2020. Um, for all of those providers that were billing that way when it was still kind of gray, they still got hit with these huge government investigations, um, ended up paying multi-million dollar settlements. So that's kind of a good example of, like I said, my, my adage, like if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, if you're making all that money off of 
a procedure that's mm -hmm. very low cost and facility to the to the um, provider, uh, you know, the government notices that. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful example of something that, you know, you could see happening at surgery centers, and obviously it did happen at a lot of surgery centers, but something that wasn't necessarily intentional in that way for every single case. So it's just so interesting to hear that particular story. When you're thinking about the audit process, what does that look like for ASCs? What is the process for them, and what do they need to know? Yeah, I mean, so number one, um, it's really important that, that ASCs, all providers, know the difference between a routine audit and a UPIC audit. Mm -hmm. um, so they can, you know, UPICs, there's the current, they change contractors, the current ones are like Clarent, Covent Bridge. So you're gonna s safeguard. Um, when you get those lets, what happens is that they'll get the audit request, it's asking for charts, and they don't mm -hmm. really know, the provider may not know how serious that is. Um, and so they might not treat it with the care that they need to. What I tell um, my clients is if you get one of these, then you need to make sure that, I mean, number one, engage with the UPIC auditor right away. Um, work with them and try to establish as good a rapport as possible. When you submit rep the records for audit, make sure you have the most pristine set of records you possibly can. Uh, <clears throat> and then, you know, just be prepared for a long process and know what you're up against. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's very hard to deal with because the way that it works, like I said, and, and because coding is, it's very, coding is a very easy kind of target for the government uh, because, like I said, they have all that data, they mine that data. It's, they're looking for those outliers. If they're highly reimbursed codes, they're saying over and over again, they just pull them out and they target you that way. Um, but the way that the process works is you do the audit, mm -hmm. they come back with an audit result and an error rate. Mm -hmm. And they extrapolate an overpayment based on the error rate. And you know, I've been handling these audits, representing providers in these audits for you know, like 10 or 12 years now since, you know, they really kind of got up and running with CMS. And it is, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen one come back with an error rate that's less than 90%. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just, these auditors, um, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, no, no matter how sloppy the practice is, like no one's really running a, running a practice that is, submitting incorrect claims that often. But, you know, these, these auditors, they, um, like I said, they're private companies, they have contracts with CMS. The people doing the audits are not clinicians. They don't always know what they're looking for. They're working off a checklist. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that their error rates are realistic. And when we've challenged them, so that you get hit with this multi-million dollar overpayment perhaps, you have to take it through the Medicare appeals process. And that is a cumbersome administrative process. Uh, there's five levels to it. Um, we have had excellent success going through it and getting, and it's also kind of a testament to the fact that these auditors aren't, I don't believe they're performing competent audits um, uh, because we're able to get these reversed um, usually completely or very close to completely. Um, but the process itself because there's been so much audit activity, there's a massive backlog. Mm -hmm. And 
the third level of appeal is when you actually get a judge, an administrative law judge. Uh, and I had one recently where I requested an administrative law judge hearing in November of 2015. I had the hearing in September of 2021. You're supposed to get it in 90 days. It took six years. Um, and but the kicker is is that they they recoup the overpayment on the front end. And so in that case, in 2015, it was a five million dollar overpayment. CMS took that money in 2015 and didn't give it back until I had the hearing in 2021 and we prevailed. Mm -hmm. But that whole, I mean, that's what makes it really dangerous because not all providers can hang on for that long, um, you know, without that, without that revenue. So, yeah, I think that's a really great point and something that's so important for surgery centers, physician practices, and anybody within the healthcare space to understand and really be prepared for it when they're thinking about how they're moving forward. Yeah. Now, in looking into the future, how do you see some of the government and, and regulatory policies changing? What do you see as being really important for ASC owners and operators to keep their eye on? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of... I've been doing this a long time and it's fairly consistent. So the enforcement activity <clears throat> doesn't, there's not really a lot of ebbs and flows. The government's always focused on healthcare um, and there's, it's, you know, it's a target rich environment for them. Um, again, <clears throat> I think coding is really important to make sure, well, number one, having, you have to have a strong compliance program if you're in healthcare, like everyone needs that. Um, and have a very professional billing coding operation and just be very mindful of, of you know when new technologies are coming on market and there's some gray area I know that there's that temptation to really you know jack up revenues um, but again it can be very dangerous because anytime the way the government picks providers to target through their data mining, they know what the highly reimbursed codes are. They can see when there's a change, like what happened with the, you know, the P-STEMs that were using this particular code for surgically implanted devices, that code, it had been flat for years, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden P-STEM comes in the market and within, you know, it, it like 10, goes up like 10 or 20 times. And so CMS notices that, the Department of Justice notices that, um, OIG notices that, and, um, so you just have to be really mindful um, and err on the side of caution and mm. uh, when it's not exactly, when you're not really clear on what codes should be used. It makes a lot of sense. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today. This is some, been some really great information and advice. We appreciate you. Thank you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great.